You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, dedicated to cultivating a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. Good morning. Uh, Thank you, Jen. Uh, First of all, I just want to say a huge thanks to Dave Jay for leading us this morning. Uh, Angela was supposed to be on worship. Uh, She actually had an immunization shot a couple of days ago and has had a huge allergic reaction. Uh, So she's actually in the hospital. So I think if you could join me in a word of prayer as we start this morning. Uh, God, we pray for our sister Angela. Uh, We love her. We love uh, the life and the energy she brings to this community, uh, who she is and what she brings to us. Um, We pray for her health. We pray for her as she's in hospital, that she would feel uh, surrounded by you in comfort and she have a speedy recovery. And God, may the words in my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So about a month before Sarah and I moved to New York City, uh, I got a phone call, and I didn't recognize the number. Uh, We had given ourselves nine weeks to completely pack and sell all our stuff and move countries. So obviously life was chaos. Uh, But when I picked up the phone, I came to a complete standstill. The voice on the other end of the phone said, Hi, Ben, it's Naaman Bonner here. I knew who Naaman was. for about three or four years, as when I was a kid, we used to pack our family into our car and drive for one and a half hours down to the coast. My dad used to lead this Bible study. He took them right through the book of Daniel for several years, and we used to drive an hour and a half home through the foggy, hilly landscape, and used to do it all the time. And Naaman's family was one of the people that hosted us down this Bible study. Uh, my sister and I used to pretend to sleep in their bedroom. A couple of years after that, Naaman actually dated a girl from my church, and eventually they got married, and they moved down the coast as well. But that's literally all I knew about Naaman. I'd never had a significant conversation with him in my memory, and I hadn't thought about him in years and years and years. So we made a little awkward small talk, the way you do, and then he got to the point and he said, Ben, I wanted to apologize for something I said to you when you were 15 years old. When I was 15 years old, I was 32 when I took this phone call. So 17 years later, this guy was ringing to apologize to me. I have a terrible memory of childhood, and I can honestly probably barely remember last week if you spoke to me last week, I wouldn't tell you what we actually could talk about. So I was really dumbstruck, and I didn't know what to say. I'm sure I said something along the lines of, dude, of course, you know, like, I don't remember this. This made, like, little to no impact on my life. Anything that you need uh, forgiveness for, you're completely forgiven. Don't give it another thought. You're totally okay. I don't hold any grudge against you. That was five years ago, before we moved here, and I think of Naaman often. I wonder what prompted him to actually call, uh, but I'm grateful he did because honestly, I can't count on one hand the amount of people who've apologized to me in my life. And I've been in church all my life. I've been around people who probably should be embodying the, the radical love and forgiveness of Jesus. And I don't know anyone else who's gone out of their way like Naaman Bonner some 15 or more years later to reach out and seek forgiveness. So Naaman, thank you. Grace and peace to you. Today I have the privilege of diving into a story uh, which gets told in Sunday school, although I really don't know why it gets told in Sunday school, because it's the first account of violence in the Bible, the story of Cain and Abel. I distinctly remember how I was taught this passage growing up. Uh, It was about acceptable worship in the sight of God. How about you guys? Abel passed, Cain failed, Abel was worthy, Cain wasn't, Abel was righteous, Cain was evil. And there was tons of speculation about what did, what did Cain bring? Was the produce very good? Was it second rate? And obviously Abel's beloved lamb, you know, that was the, the good thing. That was the right way to worship. And there was lots of back and forth about what motives were behind these offerings and what they really kind of meant when they offered uh, these you know, vegetables and these lambs. 
And the lesson for us, as they said in the back of the Sunday School book, was about following God's rules, getting our worship right, bringing our best towards God, which in the church I grew up in was code for wear a tie. So let's retell the story. Uh, this is Genesis chapter four, if you're following along. Uh, I'm gonna be reading from the NIV this morning. Uh, Adam made love to his wife, Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So this is one analysis of the text I found. Uh, What you will notice uh, when you look at the visual is it's very even in the first four verses. Both brothers are there, they're equal, and it actually alternates between Cain and Abel, and Abel and Cain, Cain and Abel and Abel and Cain, and then it gets to the offerings, and all of a sudden Cain becomes the subject, God appears in the story, and Abel becomes the object, and Abel disappears. But essentially, at the start of the story, both brothers are equal in the sight of God, until the moment the offerings move into the narrative. And the text is strangely silent on how God actually approved or respected God's, uh, Cain's, uh, sorry, how God approved, approved or respected Abel's offering. Elsewhere in the Bible, there's amazing stories about fire coming down from heaven, which is how God approved, but in this text, Nothing is said. If anything, the way the text is laid out hints that it actually is Cain who actually judges the offering. Because as soon as the offerings come in, you can see that it goes straight towards his feelings. Note that the text actually repeats this. It says uh, this, God speaks back to Cain his feelings. He says, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? It's almost humorous. So who is doing the judging here? The text is making us asking questions. The verse immediately following this is the one that like my church got hung up on uh, when I was a kid, and the focus of, you know, is God actually like saying to Abel, do uh, to Cain, do good or do evil? But one of the things I found which is fascinating is how several rabbis translate this particular statement here. It reads like this: Why are you distressed, and why is your face fallen? Surely if you do right, there is uplift. But if you do not do right, sin crouches at the door. Its urges towards you, yet you can be its master. So God seems to be hinting that Cain has a choice to make. If he actually lifts his head up from its fallen state and he holds his head high, if he believes a narrative about both brothers being equal in the sight of God, if he believes that God is, good, is for good and is for him, then he's going to experience uplift. On the other hand, if he does the opposite, there's going to be different consequences. What I think is interesting to me is that they're not extremes. If he chooses the good way, he experiences uplift. If he chooses a different way, the end isn't isn't a complete opposite. It says if he continues to harbor angry thoughts, there is the possibility that the negativity will overcome him. But it's not the final word. So it seems to me here that God is appealing to Cain to either shake it off, to lift up his head, or to get mastery of his emotions. But Cain, instead of addressing God and answering God's questions, turns his negative energy towards his brother. Verse seven reads, now Cain said to Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. 
So this is where it gets super interesting to me. In the Jewish tradition of Midrash, which is an ancient commentary on part of the Hebrew scriptures, the rabbis make an attempt to unpack a particular detail or to get in behind a detail that might be like left out, to fill in certain details to understand the meaning behind the text. And some of the Midrash around this Cain Abel story focus entirely on this verse because apparently there seems to be some text missing. In fact, this is how they read it here. It says, Cain said to Abel, blank. And when they were in the field, Cain set upon his brother Abel and killed him. So the question that rabbis have been asking for years and arguing about is, what did Cain say to Abel? One rabbi says this, it says, the fact that the Torah does not record what Cain said to Abel precisely reflects the fact that indeed he said nothing to him. And that is the whole point of the story. When communication between people breaks down, when people stop talking to each other, anything could result, even, God forbid, murder. So how does that sit with you? As you read through this text, does it fit? It seems to fit, doesn't it? It seems to fit that the faithfulness of the text, the only dialogue in Genesis 4 is between God and Cain. And Abel never speaks any word at all in the Genesis text, and Cain never addresses his brother. There's a silence, there's a, there's a closed loop. Have you been here in this space of silence where you're not talking to somebody, or maybe you are talking to them, but you're not really talking to them, if you know what I mean? I've definitely been there. I've been there this year. You know, the months roll by and the silence becomes so deep you could cut it with a knife, and sometimes you even want to. You sit together in a room, inside you're screaming, but you actually can't say the thing that you're really holding on to. So just think about that for a second. Who is it? Who is it that you've fallen into silence with? What's being left unsaid? Can you name it this morning? There are lots of variations on the Midrash, but there are three common themes that emerge on what the argument between Cain and Abel could have been about, and they touch on things that are very universal to, our, uh, to conflicts even today. Property, relationships or sex, and religion, or some other iteration of that. In fact, we say things like this, right? You should never talk about money, politics, or religion, except it seems like that's all we talk about these days. Trump! <laughs> what is interesting in the Midrash is that none of them make an attempt to keep Abel innocent. In other words, there isn't this binary, there isn't this kind of clean, squeaky clean, Abel equals good and Cain equals bad. The rabbis are just not interested in making this story that clean. What they're interested in is the very things which still drive us into conflict today as humans. After all, this is an origin story. This is Genesis 4. Like this is, you know, 1, 2, 3, creation of the world, Adam and Eve, and then Genesis 4. This is the very origin story about humanity's failure and our tendency to violence. So let's pause for a second and self-reflect. Uh, maybe you can just even close your eyes for a second and let me ask you a couple of questions. What did they say to you? What did he say to you? What did she say to you? Why are you angry? What was the argument about? In what way have you also been guilty of driving the other way? And how did you participate in the argument? Hold it for a second, put a finger on it. If you can name it, name it. Okay, so before we rush into, you know, the altogether too easy lesson for us this morning, because there was obviously one there, if that's your lesson for this morning, great, I'm glad you're there. But the second half of the story is where I get super plugged into this. 
It's very curious because it deals with a notion that actually has passed over into popular culture, the mark of Cain. So once again, in the second half of this story, we see the divine asking questions as God did with Adam and Eve um, in, in Genesis chapter three. We see the divine again asking questions, seeking to help humanity find its own answers, encouraging us to speak our truth, gently guiding us to name the things that we wish to hide, and patiently waiting for us to be honest with ourselves. God's question to Cain is this, where is your brother Abel? But Cain repeats the mistake of Adam and Eve, tries to denial, tries blame shifting, and says, am I my brother's keeper? He's angry. At this point, we see the sadness in the heart of the divine as God cries, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So now you are banished from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you try to cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its best for you. You will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. I think it's pretty easy for us to see from this text how God feels about the oppressed. And time and time again in scripture, very similar language is there. God hears the cries of the oppressed. He hears the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. He hears the cries of those who've been wronged. And the consequences that Cain will live with fall on his livelihood. Remember, he was the guy who tilled the soil. So fall on the work of his hands. Once intended to grow goodness from the earth, now will only ever remind him of the anger that ended in destruction. Nothing Cain touches can be good again, and he cannot return home to his parents to face them and tell them what he has done. He can never forget where his anger led him. So this is what Cain cries back out to God. He says, my punishment is too great to endure. Look, you are driving me off the land today, and I must hide from your presence. I will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. But God says to him, all right then, if anyone kills Cain, Cain will be avenged seven times as much. Then the Lord puts a special mark on Cain so that no one who found him would strike him down. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is where I think people of faith have really, really warped this story. And I really want you to stay with me on this. A few moments ago, when I mentioned the mark of Cain, what went through your head? Any thoughts? What, is, what does mark of Cain mean to you? Don't be shy. Scarlet letter. Scarlet letter. Yep, what else? Mark of Cain. Come up anywhere. Curse. Yeah? Uh, do we think about it as a badge of shame? Do we think about it as a sign of an outcast, a murderer, an evil person, the scarlet letter? Did you think about season two, episode 21 of the Exophiles, the Calisari, where the mark of Cain is identified as the evil since the foundation of the world called Lucifer or Hitler? No? No, no, any nerds? Okay. That's how my wife found this, by the way. She cracked this message, not me. Uh, Did you think about the hard rock band from Adelaide, Australia by the same name? No, I'm sure you didn't. So the mark of Cain uh, has crossed over into culture, becoming a common saying, and it's actually defined online as usually metaphorically applied to someone who is habitually bad. And here's where our midrash, our wrestling with the text, starts to read us, and it shows us how our limited view can go astray. One thing that helps us to fact check our midrash, our wrestling, is knowing our own history, and this is really important. So I'm gonna walk us through a timeline right now. I'm gonna start in early Judaism. In early Judaism, many rabbis speculated about the mark. What was it? One wondered if God gave Cain a dog as a sign to other other murderers, an example. Another said that God had made a horn grow out of Cain. And in Kabbalah's thought, that's the Jewish mystics, the letter Vav from their alphabet is carved into his forehead, meaning hook. Any of those images mean anything to us today? Dogs, 
hooks, horns. They're not in TV shows at all, right? Let's keep going. Uh, the speculation doesn't stop in Judaism. In early Christian, Armenian, 5th or 6th century, in the Adam book, it's written here. The Lord was wroth with Cain. He beat Cain's face with hail, which blackened like coal, and thus he remained with a black face. Let's fast forward again to the beginning of the 13th century. Pope Innocent III prohibited Christians from causing Jews bodily harm, but supported their segregation in society. On at least one occasion, he likened this to the fate of Cain described in Genesis, and he writes to the Count of Nevers, quote, the Lord made Cain a wanderer and a fugitive over the earth, but set a mark upon him. As wanderers must, i.e. the Jews, remain upon the earth until their countenance be filled with shame. He actually presided, the same, same Pope, Innocent III, presided over the Fourth Council in 1215, and that council adopted Canon 68, which requires Jews and Muslims to dress distinctively to prevent interfaith relations. Okay, let's keep going. 1322, Irish Franciscan monk, Simon Siemenus, which is an early form of the surname Fitzsimmons, uh, encounters a nomadic migrant group, now identified as the Romanis or the Gypsies, and spoke of them as the descendants of Cain. If you don't know the history of how the Gypsies were treated in Europe, then I want you to just listen to this writer in 2013. They say this, if we are honest with ourselves, we must accept that their reputation as thieves, con artists, and ne'er-do-wells has pervaded our collective consciousness. Centuries of bad press, culminating in acts that bear comparison with the conduct of the authorities towards the Australian Aboriginals in the 1930s. And you can take my word for it, if you don't know the history of the Australian Aboriginals, there's a lot of comparison to what happened with the Native Americans in this country. So what he's saying is, they didn't get treated well. I want to walk through some artworks uh, throughout history. This is a 16th century artwork, uh, and this is kind of part of the classical literature that really started uh, artworks of the next few hundred years. What you can actually see is Abel on the bottom, who's, who's being slain, has lighter skin. Cain on the top actually has darker skin. His face is downcast, it's shadowy. You don't see him, you don't see if his expression is in anger or in, in, in contrition. Uh, but let's go to the next one. This is the same, this is 16th century as well. Same thing, lighter skin, Abel, darker skin, Cain. Our next one, and we're into 1876 here on the left. Uh, so here's the same motif, lighter skin, Abel, darker skinned Cain. The one on the right hand side, uh, personally as an artwork I love, because I love modern art, but I think there's amazing sadness, because this, uh, this artist is still alive today. This artist is South African. This is post-apartheid South Africa. And we can see black Cain and white Abel. This Magritte Prige, a South African expressionist artist. And this last one, I have nothing to say about this whatsoever. This is the story we've told. Let's go back to the timeline, 1831, so we're getting close. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons as you might know them, in his translation of the Bible includes the following statement. And Enoch also beheld the residue of the people which were the sons of Adam, and they were a mixture of all the seed of Adam, save it was the seed of Cain, for the seed of Cain were black and had not place among them. So while there is no evidence that Joseph Smith actually considered the restriction between blacks and the priesthood to be relevant in modern times, after his death, the second president of the Mormons, Brigham Young, accepted the idea that people of African ancestry were generally under the curse of Cain. And in 1852, he made the statement that people of black African descent were not eligible to hold the church's priesthood. In other words, they could not be full participating members of the church. 
It wasn't until 1978, some 126 years later, that the Mormon church president, Spencer Kimball, reported receiving a revelation from God, allowing all worthy male members of the church to receive the priesthood without regard to race or color. And their current statement reads, today the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present in any form. Talking about uh, Spencer's revelation, African-American Mormon church member Brian Powell says, there is no pleasure in old news, and this news is old. All right, I'm not done. I'm not gonna drag the face of the early Jews or the early Eastern Christians or the Catholics or Mormons through the mud and let Protestants and evangelicals get off easy. This is probably not the news to some of you guys, uh, because I'm sure you kind of know your history, but I want to do a little revision this morning, because it's important as we kind of look at ourselves to kind of check it, you know, fact check ourselves. So 1845, what happened in this country? Anyone, any ideas? 1845? Say it again. Gold rush. Gold rush? What else? What are things happening around 1845? Where? In, in America. Where, where? All over America. Any ideas? Guessing, you can, you can guess, it's okay. Slavery, yeah, something about slavery, you're right. Okay, here it is, 16 years before the American Civil War. So 16 years before the American Civil War, the Southern Baptist Convention split from the Northern Baptists over the issue of slavery. At the time of the split, the Southern Baptist group used the curse of Cain as a justification for slavery. Some 19th and 20th century Baptist ministers in the southern United States taught that there were two separate heavens, one for blacks, one for whites. 150 years later, in 1995, they officially denounced racism and apologized for its past offense of slavery. People, 1995, that's 21 years ago. So if you've ever had any questions or thoughts on whether the Black Lives Matter movement is overreacting or is too much, or is out of step with reality because we live in a post-racial America, then please hear this. Regardless of the sin of slavery in this country, or the many debated cultural or socio-economic issues surrounding the treatment of black people as regards to voting, or property rights, or the rates of incarceration, regardless of any other thing, this is why our church stands with that movement. Because church, for th because church theology for hundreds of years, and I don't think it's a stretch to say thousands of years, has told black people that they live under the curse of Cain, the curse of God, and the mark of Cain. But that's not biblical, that's not just, that's not generous, and it's certainly not Christian. So we're gonna to continue to tell a better story, a bigger story, in which black lives matter. If you think I had to work really, really hard to get all these facts and figures, and if you think this is like a conversation that's only for the intellectually elite uh, or for the educated, then I hate to disappoint you because everything I just told you is public, free, easy to reach information on Wikipedia. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Go home, read it, read the footnotes, read it again, send it out to people. So with all, all this information we just did, this whole timeline, we think about that, let's go back to the biblical text, shall we? Cain says to God, my punishment is too great to endure. Look, you are driving me off the land today and I must hide from your presence. I will be a homeless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord says to him, all right then, 
If anyone kills Cain, Cain will be avenged seven times as much. Then the Lord put a special mark on Cain so that no one who found him would strike him down. Question, does this text say that the mark of Cain is a curse? No, right? In fact, it says the opposite, doesn't it? It actually says that God puts a special mark on Cain to protect him. Cain is forgiven. He is protected. In the Jewish Midrash, Midrash, it's generally widely accepted that Cain's exclamation carries a penitent note. Essentially, Cain confesses to his crime and appeals for mercy. And God's response is weighty. Not only does Cain live, but God says that if someone kills Cain, his death will be avenged sevenfold. So that's the second hard rock reference for those playing along at home. Uh, last week, Hannah talked about the number seven in the Bible, and she says the number seven uh, in the Hebrew scriptures indicates completion. So God's response is that if Cain dies, his death will be completely avenged. A few verses later in Genesis, in an epilogue to Cain's story, a descendant of his, a guy called Lamech, uh, seems to have got into a fight with a younger man in what seems to be a fair war, and he kills the man, and he comes home, and this is what he boasts. He says, if Cain is to be avenged seven times as much, then Lamech 70 times seven. So this is where the Bible actually at times speaks to itself and the Old Testament and the New Testament collide in an amazing way. And this is where Jesus enters this story this morning that we're talking about Cain and Abel. We're gonna turn over to Matthew 18. If you've been in church before, you probably know that Matthew 18 is like how, what we use to talk about conflict in church and what we're supposed to do and all of these rules we're supposed to follow. Uh, Matthew 18, 21. Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? So I don't think that Peter here is like being facetious. I don't think he's like literally counting on one hand seven times. I think he's saying the Jewish thought seven times means completely. Like, should I forgive my brother completely? And here's Jesus' response. Jesus says, I tell you not just seven times, but 70 times seven. Then Jesus goes on and tells this crazy story. He tells this story about how a servant owned a king a sum of money which was so absurd that it would take him the equivalent of 200,000 years to pay it back. In other words, he's never gonna pay this off. It's ridiculous, it's totally impossible. And the king, much like John Oliver a couple of months ago, forgave it, $15 million, just wrote it off, deleted it like it was no big deal. So the servant struts out of the palace, runs down to his mate's, mate's place, grabs him by the scruff of the neck and says, you owe me a pint. And when his body can't actually pay up, when his body can't pay up, he slaps him in jail. The king hears about it, he's like, what did you do? He said, I cancelled all the debt of yours because you begged me to, and then you've turned around and you haven't had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you. What's the story about? Well, Jesus, you know, in kind of unusual fashion, because most of the time he doesn't explain himself, but this one he does. He doesn't even leave us wondering. Jesus says, this story is about radical forgiveness. Jesus says that we need to forgive our brother or sister from our heart. Jesus says, don't just forgive seven times, i.e. don't just forgive your brother completely or forgive your sister completely. Forgive 70 times seven. Forgive endlessly as God forgives you. So what I want us to do as a church is today is to begin to tell a different story about Genesis chapter four. I think this story is not about the curse of Cain but the mark of mercy. I think it's a story that talks about God love loving all of his children equally, even the ones who have messed up terribly. I think it's a story about God forgiving and protecting his people. 
I think it's a story about the divine entering our own human story and begging us to lift up our heads from our conflicts. I think it's a story about a love that is crying out for the end to the cycle of retaliation. And I think it's a story that proclaims that our wars are over. Let's pray. God, we don't know how to do this very well. I'm sure as uh, this morning as we answered this question of when was the last time we were apologized to or we apologized to someone that we scratched our heads. So this morning, God, let us be people of radical forgiveness. Let's start in this place here this morning. Let's seek reconciliation. Allow us the strength to know that we are loved first and foremost, God. Allow us to not sit in a place like Cain where we, where we hold on to our self-hatred and our own uh, sense of justice. Allow us to feel this morning in church to know that we are loved, forgiven, protected, God. Not marked, not people who live under a curse, people who live under your loving hands. God, as we wander about this world, uh, let us be wounded healers. May our salvation be a thing which fills up the tanks of other people. May we live at peace with all men. May we put down our weapons and realize that an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And God, this morning, as we remember two years ago, Michael Brown lying for four and a half years in the street, allow us in this country to repent, to repent of the curse that we have placed upon black people, to allow everybody to come to the table, God, to be seen, to be known, to be loved. It's in your love and name we pray. Amen.